<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Bring us in, babe. <laughs> Welcome to Coco Caliente. You threw me off on that. Gotcha. I was ready to go. I was really ready to go. You know, you said it so fast. I was like, I got it. <laughs> um, so today's intro topic <laughs> is brought to you by Nicole Franzel. <laughs> um, there's a craft bazaar today, and I'm really excited to go after we get done podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So the average person, right, that lives, I'd say... Well, I'd say most people live in cities, right? Yeah. So let's say that. So what if they don't know what a craft bazaar is? So what I is that? I think cities have craft bazaars as well, but they're probably just not as homemade. Maybe they are. What um, is a craft bazaar? A craft bazaar is a thing that takes place in like a school around here, like a local school, and all the hallways are filled with goods that you either knit, you craft, you make a wreath. You sometimes people sell cookies. So who who's making these things? Anybody. So, I, I want to eventually have a booth at a craft bazaar. Like say, you know how our neighbor um she makes the table runners? Mm-hmm. She like sews them, she sells them there. Oh, so it's so like something it's a hobby. You that's kind of crazy though. That it's a, you go to a high school and all the hallways are filled uh-huh. with booths that people are making stuff and selling themselves. Yeah. Crafts. Yeah. That is interesting. I love it. I had never heard of that in my life until I moved here. Really? Same with the fact that I now have a bowling ball and bowling shoes in my car Mm -hmm. and that everybody here pretty much has their own bowling ball and bowling shoes. And when I said that at work, they were like, you have your own bowling ball and your own bowling shoes? That's weird. And I was like, no, no, no. It's not weird where I live. Because I live in a little village where everybody has that. Yeah. So, I don't know. Just another nuance of uh, living in a small town. Like, I I, li- I love Craft Bazaar so much. Um, you should come. Nah, I think I'm going to pass on that. You get to see. So, some years it's kind of like, oh, it's the same thing. But once in a while there's, like, new fads out there. And I don't see them much. And so, I'm like, oh, so now this is a thing. And, like, I'm always looking for Christmas decorations. Um, but the thing is, is like, I feel really bad walking by every station and not buying something. Cause it is. Yeah. And so <laughs> okay. it's their hard earned, like their it's their work and you feel so sad. Yeah. And it's not, uh, so 
they're taking time and and I think about this. They pay to be there as well. Yeah, and I think about this when we go to like the actual craft shows at like a festival or something. Yeah. You know, where they have all the tents set up. Mm -hmm. So these people are at home taking their time to make this. This is not their job. If anything, this is a side gig where they make some extra money on it, right? Mm -hmm. And so they take their time, they go out and they set up a booth and a lot of times I'm thinking, how many people actually buy this stuff, right? For them to take their time to Mm -hmm. make it and then pay to have the booth and then sit out there all day. Like, are they really making enough money? Or are they just like so <clears throat> proud of what they made mm-hmm. and just one person buying it is yeah. like, oh, that's awesome. You know what I mean? So absolutely. Is it worse or better to, I'm in like a limbo mm-hmm. where I don't want to walk by and act like their stuff isn't good. Say, I know I'm not going to buy this yeah. product, especially I, I don't really buy like the Mary Kay or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah, into yeah. like the knitted things mm-hmm. or whatever, but if I'm not interested do you walk by and just pretend like, oh, you didn't see it? Or do you like be like, well, this works beautiful, and but then no, you're not buying it. So it's like bad to lead them on and be like, well, yeah. this is nice. Or should you just ignore it? Like, what yeah. do you do? Well, maybe the polite thing to do, you know, just acknowledge smile. and smile yeah. and, you know, hey, that is nice. And then keep moving on. There have been times, though, where I think myself and you have bought things that we don't necessarily you yes. like i've bought stuff from like the he has like a garden at his house and he made whatever yeah yeah and i'll buy it but i never eat it mm-hmm. you know what i mean but I, I think it's like good enough right that's like oh maybe i could eat it but i, I will don't really never feel like eating exactly it. and i will never go to a craft show and leave empty-handed never never, never. Yeah. not even no even if i would never use something i'm going to walk around with bags in my hand because that's the nature of the game and and sometimes you have so much that you do like that you don't know what to buy i bought those see where those uh cute succulent cactus those jars i bought that last year there and this is why (laughs) nicole has a hoarding problem i do not have a hoarding problem we're not going back to episode one (laughs) well it i I think it's very clear to see that you do but it's okay i do not have a hoarding problem okay she doesn't have a hoarding problem victor have you seen the movie hoarders no i don't it's a more okay it's an organized hoarding it's not hoarding You're so annoying. <laughs> it's not, I swear to you guys, it's not hoarding. Also, something valuable, this is completely off topic, that I was telling Nicole about earlier today. I was listening to a podcast, it's called Science Versus, I believe is the is the name of the podcast. Do we have time for this? Yes, we do, because <laughs> I think this is important, right? So we all know that exercising, okay, we have said before that exercising is not the way to lose the most weight, right? It is... Right, like 80% food or 70% yeah, so food, dieting. 30% uh, exercise. Exactly. So dieting is the way to lose most weight. But exercising in and of itself has a lot of benefits that I just learned scientifically. One, it's uh, studies have shown that it produces new brain cells, which yep. is kind of crazy in the hippocampus. And so with that, they had a long-term study that showed that people that... That is not how you say that word. Hippocampus? It is? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I've never pronounced it like that. Hippocampus? What am I, what, is it hippocampus? I thought it was hippocampus. I don't think there's any hippa to it. Okay. Everybody just wait right here and we're just going to check uh, this it's right here. pop pop this. Okay. That's What's crazy is in nursing school, I had to memorize everything. I know the whole entire anatomy of the body, every freaking medication you could ever imagine. So 
The teacher never pronounced them for us. We saw them in our textbook or on a test. You ready? Yeah. Oh, he's right. Mm-hmm. And so I would say it how I thought it would be said. And then I would hear it in like the hospital. I'm like, well, wow, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> but because you do not have time to look up the pronunciation of every single word. So, yeah. I mean, my friends would make fun of me, but it would, things click in my brain when I remember weird things like that. Okay, continue. Yeah. So it showed that those brain cells are uh, being produced, those new ones in the hippocampus, which another study showed that people that were high fit had a 90% chance of not having dementia Mm -hmm. if they were high fit. Normal fit, like let's say exercise just regularly, nothing Mm -hmm. crazy, uh, you were a 40% chance of not getting dementia. And same with exercising with cancer, right? People, not only did exercising reduce your chances of getting cancer, but if you had cancer, let's say the, the test was done on prostate cancer, if you had that, and you exercise, you had a 60% chance of not dying because of the cancer, mm-hmm. right? The cancer was not the, the one that was going to kill you because it created these cancer killer cells. Exercising produced more of them and they infiltrate the, the cancer cells and they attack them from within. And my hypothesis on this is that the reason that you make new brain cells and also you basically it helps your well-being with dementia and getting sick is because I think back in the day our nature would be, okay, this person is like running, trying to catch us food, trying to provide for families. So we need this person to survive in, other, in order for other humans to survive. They're taking care and they're providing for. And Vic said, that's a really good explanation. That, that, is, a, that, is, that is a good armchair expert explanation way of thinking about it i think yeah yeah because you're like sure. this, we need this person to have brain cells to learn how to catch food that is even more difficult mm-hmm. like animals and we need them to be faster and stronger um yep 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 okay so for christmas i got my mom this beautiful ring it's 18 karat gold that says i love you mama um and i got it from noemi noemi believes that luxury jewelry doesn't have to be overpriced because it is very hard to find exactly what you're looking for um that it's genuine it's like you know different unique and it's dainty and it's priced well um so you can save an average of 50 percent compared to other luxury brands because noemi cuts out the middleman to deliver exceptional fine jewelry without the traditional retail markups Um, You can personalize with engravings and even order custom designs, which is really, really cool. I love ordering personalized things. At Noemi, everyone gets the friends and family uh, like treatment. So they all get like that discount because they can afford to because they cut out the middleman. You can read the thousands of five-star reviews if you're debating on whether you want to you know, order from Noemi or you're looking for someone special. You can return any order for a full refund, even engraving and custom designs. It's literally an entirely risk-free experience. They give you certificates to um, guarantee authenticity and you can use flexible payment options if that's something you're interested in too. So if you're looking for jewelry for someone special, go to hellonoemi.com forward slash Coco, C-O-C-O to see their collections and get $50 off your first purchase with promo code Coco, C-O-C-O. Just go to hello, H-E-L-L-O, Noemi, N-O-E-M-I-E dot com slash C-O-C-O. And don't forget to use the promo code Coco, C-O-C-O for $50 off your first purchase. All right. So Switching okay, gears. So yeah, so our guest today, so I had read a book maybe like a month and a half ago mm-hmm. um, called Tears of the Silenced by Misty Griffin. 
she was someone who was born into kind of like an abusive um, atmosphere and she got kind of pushed into being Amish. I mean, being Amish was a way out for her and she ended up breaking free from the Amish because of, uh, she'll share her story with you. Um, It was just very touching in a way of like how she didn't give up how mm-hmm. she constantly fought, even though police authorities told her over and over again there was nothing they could do. Um, I think that sharing her story is really important so that way people do open their eyes and they do know the truth about if a, someone comes to you saying they're being abused, you need to absolutely believe them. This didn't happen that long ago. Or at least figure it out, right? Yeah, Search don't and just investigate. say she got hearing Amish no, the Amish don't do stuff like that. The Amish are good people. And you know that the manipulators, they're really good at putting on that face of everything's perfect. So that's every single time that she told, I need help, they would all put on that face of, no, everything's great. She's just upset. She's rebelling. Yeah. And uh, she went through it for years and years and years. So, yeah, we're, we're going to talk to her and uh, about her story. Mm-hmm. Uh, very compelling stuff. And I just want to give you guys a warning, heads up, that there may be some adult undertones mm-hmm. in this conversation. So just be aware of that. Hi, Misty. Hi. Thank you so much for joining with us today. We really um, appreciate it. And sure, of course. Yeah, we, so I read your book and it was just like, I was just like, oh my gosh, Victor, we have to try to get her on the podcast because your story is just so compelling. Yes. And I feel like the world needs to hear it. And so that way this doesn't happen to um, anybody else ever, (laughs) hopefully. Yeah. That's why I wrote it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself uh, right now, what you're doing and and, um, the things that you're working on. Um, well, actually, right now I have some exciting news. Um, well, I just graduated nursing school at the end of June. Oh, oh congratulations. congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And then um, after that, like in September, uh, I met with a producer and a director, and now we're underway to uh, make a TV series out of my book. So, it's pretty exciting. Wow, that is that's incredible. Yeah, that is really. Uh, do you have a name for the 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 series yet? Um, as far as I know, it's going to be called Tears of the Silence, just like the book. It's, yeah, um, supposed to be uh, two seasons. So oh. yeah, two seasons. And are you going to help? I'm going to. Oops, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be the scriptwriter and uh. consulting producer on the series. Hey, that's but right amazing. now we're just in the funding process, mm-hmm. but we have a lot of interest. So yeah, no, for sure. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy for you. That's uh, if anybody deserves that, it's you. You yeah. know, and then that what a what a way to gain awareness, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was unexpected, but yeah, I'm very excited about. That. So, uh, Misty, tell us, uh, tell us, you know, our, for the listeners that don't know you or don't know your story, let's just go back to the beginning, you know, tell us about your childhood and, and, and growing up. Okay. So, yeah. Um, um kind of a crazy story, how it happened, I guess, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, when I was about, Four years old, uh, my mom met my stepfather, and um, that's kind of when my story starts. Like, it, 
that's when I start remembering when I was like four. I remember little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mom came from like, you know, a world of drugs, domestic violence, you know, a, a really bad background herself. And um, she ended up having three children with her stepfather, um, which is my father. Oh, wow. And um, she ended up marrying him. She actually married him for like a few months. Oh, wow. uh, when she was 19. And um, my brother, who was my uh, mom's first child, um, she had him when she was 15. He was adopted by my grandmother. Um, but when my mom ran away with her stepfather, uh, which is my dad, um, they kidnapped him. And my brother actually became one of the first um, milk carton kids. Um, we were on the run from the FBI, and oh, they wow. finally tracked him down. Yeah, he was, he has it. He found it. Um, we got in contact through my book and um, a couple years ago, and he found a chest of stuff um, after his um, uh, after my grandmother's husband died, and he found the milk carton that he's on. He's on it. So it would have been like back in 1980. Yeah, or something. yeah. I I, yeah. Uh, I I heard a documentary like podcast about the milk carton kids. So that's kind of interesting uh-huh. that you brought that up. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, he was actually one of the first milk carton kids, and we were living in Topeka, Kansas, hiding from the FBI. I was two years old, and he was four, and um. He was outside of our apartment, and one of the women recognized him from the milk carton and called the the police. That's that's how he was found. Wow! So yeah, and it did work. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. One of the women recognized him. So um, and after he was sent back, oh sorry. No, no. So even so, even when so they took him away and they left you with them still, regardless yeah. of yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was my. Um, <laughs> My mom and my real dad at that time, um, which was her stepfather. But, yeah, they left me and my sister um, with them because we were their biological children. Um, The only reason my brother was taken away is because when he was born, my grandmother had adopted him Mm. because my my mom was so young. She was 15. So Mm -hmm. my... I don't think my grandmother really knew who kidnapped him. He was just kidnapped out of the backyard, and that's why the FBI was brought in, was put on a milk carton. I think she suspected who maybe um, kidnapped him, but um, there was like a two a two year search for him. Oh, that's um, a long so, time. <laughs> so, anyways, um, after he was sent back to live with my grandmother, um, that's when. That's when um, my mom and my dad sort of split up, and uh, my mom met my stepdad, which mm-hmm. was where my story really starts, um, yeah. most of the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was about four years old, and my mom met this miner, um, this gold miner in northern um, Arizona, and... We started living with him. He was a lot older. My mom was like 22, and he was 47. So, oh yeah. Um, oh, that's a, a big giant, uh, that's a big age gap. Yeah. <laughs> Gigantic age difference there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we went to live with him. We had this tiny 13 foot trailer. Um, 
on at the mine that we started living in. And I mean, he was just, he'd been in the Marines for five years when he was younger. So mm-hmm. he was a little bit of a hard to live with, very, um, he believes that, you know, children should be seen and not heard, all of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. Really strict disciplinarian. And um, he was a actually a once a child molester, mm-hmm. fortunately. Um, yeah. So life was really hard living, living with him. And then uh, when I was about six years old, he started getting this idea that we should be Amish. And we started dressing in, like, really long dresses, veils. And everything. And, and did, uh, did he even know at that time what it meant to be Amish, or did he just think the idea of like hiding, being, yeah, being uh, like perceived as being Amish means that people won't bother you or really, you know? Mm-hmm. So at that time, you know, at six years old, I had no idea. Like, this was like so strange to me. And I didn't really find out like the real kind of the full story. In mind, I still don't know the full story, but. After I left, after I was older and after I left the Amish, you know, after I left my family, everything, um, I I met as an adult with some of his relatives, and I started piecing together, and his ex-wife, I just met up with his ex-wife a couple years ago, so I started piecing together the story, like, why did he want to start becoming Amish, Mm -hmm. and it kind of all fell into place, and what I had come up with is that Back in the late 60s, early 70s, he was wanted for child molestation in Washington State. And um, his wife divorced him, and he was about to be arrested. Um, this is what his sister told me long mm-hmm. after, mm-hmm. you know, when I was like 22 years old. Um, he was about to be arrested. Um, he was accused of molesting two little neighbor girls. Oh. And um, he disappeared. He he fled to Alaska and he started working on the on the um, herring and smelt boats, the fishing boats up there. Uh-huh. So he sort of disappeared off of the um, off of the uh, law enforcement radar. You know, there's mm-hmm. no way to track him up there, really. Yeah. And um, so from there, he went to Arizona and he started working in the mines and stuff. So what I think. Because me and my sister were so little, we weren't his real children. I think that he started this Amish um, dressing, this plain lifestyle to um, a sort of a, what do you call it, like a a way to mask what was happening. Because him and my mom were severely abusive to us. Like, they mm-hmm. beat us. They starved us. You know, they were really, really abusive. And um, he was molesting us, of course. So... Um, I think that he started this uh, plain-looking lifestyle so people wouldn't ask questions. Because if they did ask too many questions, they might pull stuff up from his past. Yeah, so so, like hiding in plain sight type of deal. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's what it was. And for for your mom, because was your mom an abusive person before she met him? Or did that just kind of, he just kind of fed her into that? making her seem like that was normal or okay so i you know i can't really i was so young i was so young i couldn't really remember that but um after i got back in touch with my brother um a couple years ago um you know we were raised apart so he found my book online he just he was like searching for me and my book popped up so that's how he found me oh wow um Mm -hmm. but yeah um he's two years older than i am 
he said, I asked him that, and he said yes. He said that um, when they were, uh, before he was found by the FBI in Kansas, he said our dad was very abusive. Mm-hmm. Our dad was very abusive to him. My mom allowed it to happen, and he said that he has court papers of um, <clears throat> why my grandma um, adopted him. And one of the court papers says that when he was a little baby, um, that my mom let him slip under the water when she was giving him a bath. Like oh, really, geez. yeah. And the the he sent me pictures of the papers. It cited uh, leaving child alone, um, neglect, mm. abuse. So, um, I think she, I think because my mom witnessed so much abuse as a kid, mm-hmm. she just went down that path. And yeah, she, she that's witnessed horrifying domestic violence. You know, just really, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what I think too. Because I feel like people aren't inherently born that way, and she was just caught in that no. cycle of like perpetual abuse, uh-huh. and then that abuse, like you said, turned into like different drug abuse, and and she was just around people all the time, and that just became her normal. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, and then you guys uh-huh. got stuck in that situation, you know, and and it's just it's just bad all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But I mean, she became worse than her own mother. I mean, she be, she became sadistic where she, at a very young age, from when I was four, I remember her beating us and laughing. I mean, she enjoyed it. Like, it was very... Yeah. She became extremely, extremely abusive, and she enjoyed doing it. Like, it gave her some sort of um, stress relief. I mean, it made her happy. So yeah. it was, like, very, very creepy you know, yeah. to think about it. That, that gives me the chills. She laughed. Yeah, that's... I mean, some... You hear of some child abusers, but I've heard of very few where they recount that the person laughed when they were beating them. Yeah, I think I mean, it's that's... it's against all like mother nature uh-huh. for you would want to protect your child. You'd want to like throw your body on top of the child and say like hit me, uh-huh. don't hit my daughter. And so when I'm reading the book and just hearing her laugh and like wanting Brian, like Brian to do it more and stuff. I was just like Uh so appalled of it's just against all human nature. So it's definitely had to be some sort of sickness or chemical. I would think because it's just against even being raised like that, you, it happened to you and you turned complete opposite. Yeah. Well, and even Uh taking it one step further to, you know, to what uh, Misty's saying, it's like even the normal, angry person right right, would Uh not be laughing they would just have that anger in their face and 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 to be like that and probably feel bad later yeah it's just i don't know that that, that's Uh just yeah yeah that's just crazy so continuing on with the story so then he starts getting you guys to dress up in amish clothing and starts trying to like fake live that lifestyle so then what happens from there so um this is when i'm like six or seven, um, there was actually a documentary that came out in the 70s about the Amish, and he watched it, and um, it was called The Amish, A People of Preservation. Um, he really watched that a few times. And the, I don't know if you know the movie The Witness with Harrison Ford, the Amish movie? It uh, also came out at that time. Okay. Yeah, it was like right around that time, and all of these like started sparking these ideas in his head. Um, because he was actually born in Pennsylvania, so when he would go for family reunions, um, he would see Amish. Um, he, he grew up somewhere around Newcastle, Pennsylvania. 
Okay. He was born there. He grew up in Washington State, but he was born there. So they had a lot of family reunions back there. So he was around the Amish, and he said he would try to talk to them. And so, I mean, it was just this whole kind of fascination. He He was like kind of fascinated with it, like wanting to learn more. He was fascinated. Yeah, he was fascinated with the idea that the man was in charge and the women Mm. had to do what they were told. That that's what fascinated him the most. Yeah, not not the not not the the actual lifestyle. Yeah, inform. I feel like it's like a more of like a malicious intent. Fast. Oh, like oh, Uh I can get away with this stuff here. This is perfect for me. Uh Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was abnormal because a lot of times when people start, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people in the 90s, the the early 90s that started on this, like, plain, you know, long dresses, veils, Mm -hmm. you know, they, like, started these communities. But that was the the strange part about us. We didn't try to join a community that looked like us. We didn't try to join the Amish. We didn't try, you know, to join the Mennonites or some other, Mm -hmm. you know, offshoot that was you know, was, that was starting to dress like this. I mean, we could have. It would have been very easy to find a community that was trying to live like the Amish, too, right. because there were a lot of them. Mm-hmm. For us, we remained solitary. We never tried to join anything. Mm-hmm. And that was the the very strange part. Um, part of it was because, you know, my I think my stepdad was afraid of getting arrested for child molestation, child abuse, and mm-hmm. um, he was just antisocial. I mean, mm-hmm. he was extremely antisocial. Um, so we, you know, we were, we we lived in Seattle for a while um, near his relatives, but they always kept me and my sister, like, away from everybody. You know, we couldn't talk. If we wanted to talk, we had to raise our hands. Mm-hmm. You know, me and my sister were, like, always isolated, even while we were living with and around the relatives. So uh, it was just this isolative um, existence that we lived. Um, so we went back and forth um, from Seattle to Arizona, you know, um, Seattle in the summer, um, Arizona in the winter, um, until I was like 11 years old. Um, but we lived in travel trailers most of the time. Mm-hmm. So me and my sister were like kept in the travel trailer a lot. And um, we were sort of homeschooled. Um, we, we taught ourselves pretty much. Uh, we had um, brought in staff homeschooling books. Uh, we did, like, you know, a lesson here and there just in case the state ever, you know, yeah. tried to check up on us or something. Um, mm-hmm. But I ended up with, like, a second or third grade education pretty much. Wow. Um, yeah. It, w- it was just in case the state, uh, because my mom was collecting, you know, government checks for us, so it was just in case the state ever, you know, decided to check up on us. That's the only reason they had us doing the schoolwork, pretty much, because, you know, a lot of people didn't even know we existed. I mean, there was maybe a handful of people that knew we existed. Even my mom's mother, who was also abusive, you know, bad person, uh, she was telling my mom, you know, you have to send the girls to school. You have to, you know, get them out, you know, where they have friends. Um, You know, because she didn't isolate my mom. She never isolated my mom. Mm -hmm. So she was you know, an abusive person too, but she, she knew it was wrong to isolate us. So we separated from her because I think she was about ready to call child protective services. My brother said, yeah, my brother said that my uh, grandmother was about ready to call um, child protective services on my mom. So we separated from her. Um, So we separated from, you know, my stepdad's family in Seattle. 
So by the time I was 10 years old, I mean, there was nobody that really knew we existed. You know, just some people that saw us in the trailer or outside of the trailer, but, you know, nobody, there was nobody who cared mm-hmm. enough to check up on us or anything. So, you know, they could get away with pretty much whatever they wanted mm-hmm. um, to do to us, and they did. I and mean, they were, I mean, the abuse just escalated as the years went on. And that would be um, even so, scary for you. Like, I know in your book a couple of times you're like, yeah, we could have ran at this point. But knowing how you're so many miles away from other people and these people, uh-huh. these people wouldn't have, they would have been wanting to help you, but they couldn't kind of invest in you because they didn't know you. And weren't uh-huh. wasn't your mom and stepdad so good at pretending like they were the best parents in the world that it was, that's kind of hard Right, they were pretending that they were so great, and people believed it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the scary part. Even as a, a, a little kid, mm-hmm. um, to I mean, there's people. If you read on my book, there's people that that write reviews like, "Oh, she could have told her aunt. She could have, you know, told this person that person. She could have ran." But for an abuse situation like that, like you know, my stepdad made jokes sometimes about killing us. Mm-hmm. So. Unless you're 100% sure that you're going to get out of there and you're not going to have to go back, you're not going to tell anybody and you're not going to run unless you know that you're not going to have to go back. Because it's very, um, I mean, I remember thinking this as a kid, you know, not maybe not consciously all the way through, but mm-hmm. I remember feeling it, you know, because there were times I wanted to tell my stepdad's sister, you mm-hmm. know, what was happening. But the thought of, Maybe she goes and confronts him, and then maybe we disappear before she can help us. Right. And then it'll be 10 times worse for you when you get back to the house. Yeah. I was never going to take that, you know, Mm -hmm. if you, I was never going to take that chance. If you've ever endured a severe beating, I mean, the thought of that, I mean, you're going to avoid that at all costs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was never sure if the person could actually fully get us out of there. So right. No, I've, I, I mean, that's why it's like a domestic violence victim. Unless you're mm-hmm. sure you can really escape, you know, your husband or whoever you're with that's that's harming you. Yeah, you're it's you're not going to take that chance because when I, mean, I was it, 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 I when I was reading scary. for sure, and when I was reading the book, I I um never thought that you had a clear opportunity to get out because it seemed like they'd weasel their way into, you know, making you just look like you're rebelling or you're just like a kid that's Mm -hmm. throwing a fit. And it was so frustrating, but I never thought that you had a clear escape path out of there. Even like running, thinking about running a couple miles for help, that's exhausting after you're being beat and, you know, they're going to drag you back and everything like that. So I knew that in the book you were kind of defending yourself like I couldn't run here and I totally understood where you were coming from. Just because you have contact with another human doesn't mean that's the right time to tell because it could result in something much worse. Yeah, and on top of that too, it's just like uh, he was so Brian, right? He was so good at the ever-changing variables, right? So you never knew if you were going to leave here soon or Mm -hmm. what was going to happen that Uh day. Living in constant fear, like the the variables are always changing to where you don't want to make a decision right now because as soon as you're about to formulate this plan that took you a little bit, the the variable could have changed. Yeah. Yeah, there was something very, I mean, my mom and my stepdad were so... um, 
um, I don't know what, what you would call it. Like, I mean, it was so strange because they were always watching us. I mean, it wasn't like they were just bad people that, um, you know, flew into the spit of rage that, you know, they mm-hmm. would beat us because they were drunk or because, you know, they were just mean people. I mean, they planned things. Like they, they planned it out. And it was, that's what makes this whole story very, um, I don't know what you call it, creepy, because, you know, from when we were small kids, from little kids, they conditioned us that they were always watching us. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they would leave us, they would always go in the store, and they would leave us in the back of the truck and, you know, say, don't talk. You know, we weren't allowed to talk to each other. And then, you know, we would think they were in the store, and then all of a sudden they were looking through the window at us in the back of the truck. Jesus. It was so scary and they did that our entire lives they did that um so we would quickly learn to not talk not make any noise and then you know they wouldn't do it for a few months and then you know we would start talking like oh they're not coming back and then all of a sudden they were looking at us and they would they, they snuck up on us like very quiet and when we moved to the ranch they did the same thing we would think oh they drove into town and all of a sudden they were standing behind us they would drive the truck like you know a half a mile down the road you know, around a bin in the dirt road, and then they would hike back up to the ranch and sneak up on us to see what we were doing. That is so oh my strange. So, yeah, they, they did it. And then, of course, you know, we were kids, so, you know, we'd be talking to each other. I mean, that was like the big mm-hmm. taboo always, our whole lives. We're not allowed to talk to each other. Or we'd be sitting down looking at a book or something, you know. So whenever they snuck up on us, of course, we always got beat within an inch of our lives. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's what made it... That's... I mean, that's what made it so they could go off and do so. I mean, they they were they could be gone for days, and we wouldn't try to leave that ranch and that's, because we were afraid. That's, what if they're not gone? That's, you know, it was so scary. They have to be living in a constant state of paranoia themselves, which is a miserable life to live. If they're leaving oh, yeah. to then, you know, come hike back up, it's because they're paranoid that they're going to get caught. So all these years, Mm -hmm. they're just stressed out that they're finally going to get outed. And at that same time, they're putting you guys through this miserable, Mm -hmm. I mean, unspeakable things. uh, And and they're just miserable through the whole thing. So I I really don't understand it. It's it's hard for me to fathom that they were happy ever. You know, it's it's, it's really tough. I never saw them happy. Yeah. I never saw them happy. They were always mad. So, yeah, it's strange. Yeah. And so so then you guys, you said you moved to the ranch, and and I believe that's where you were until you were about 19, and and you finally made that a good attempt to get out, and then he got scared, and that's when he sent you off. Something kind of like that is what happened? Yeah, so when I was um, 10 years old, we, we found some people that knew how to make Amish clothes. They showed my mom how to make real Amish clothes, um, you know, no longer just the bales and the dresses. Mm-hmm. So we started dressing. I mean, we really looked Amish. Like, we still drove a car, but we looked, from head to toe, we, we totally looked Amish. Um, and then we moved to the, the ranch in northern Washington. Um, I mean, it was there was nothing there we moved there. It was just 60 acres of land. Oh. Um, but, yeah. So we had to, like, you know, we were sort of, like, homesteading, you know. So we mm-hmm. built this ranch up over the years. Um, but that's where my sister and I were kept for almost pretty much the next eight, eight and a half years. Um, they only came off of the, the mountain. The ranch was six and a half miles out of town, oh. and the yeah. town was a town of 1,000 people. Yeah. Um, and so it was tidy. Um, you know, there was only 
a few people that ever saw us. So it was six and a half miles out of town on a dirt road um, through sagebrush, you know, mountainous terrain. So, uh, I mean, it would have taken a long, long time to get into town, very long time. Um, so, yeah, my sister and I were only pretty much allowed off of the ranch to, um, you know, help bring stuff back to the ranch. Or we used to sell things along the road, like uh, we made Amish dolls, we sold cookbooks, um, animals, like cows and goats and stuff. So that's pretty much the only times me and my sister were ever really allowed off of the mountain, um, what we called it, the ranch. So, yeah. And, you know, there was a lot. Of, I mean, there was a thousand people in the town, and, you know, most of them knew that we were up there. But, you know, nobody ever tried to, you know, come up and get us or, you know, nobody knew us enough to care, right. you know. Yeah. Really, Check. what's going on with those two teenage Amish girls up on the mountain? You know, there's no other Amish around. Um, later, I found out after, like, a year ago, I found out um, that there was a Mennonite, there was a Mennonite church, like, 16 miles away, and they knew that we were up there. Um, sometimes their members, you know, some of the women would come up, you know, like, twice a year, like, you know, visit, you know, try to visit. Um, and... I found out when I was, like, 16 years old that, um, well, I found out later, but when mm -hmm. I was 16, one of the Mennonite ladies went to her um, minister and told the minister that she wanted to call Child Protective Services, mm -hmm. um, but the minister told her not to, told her not to get involved. So oh. She told me, yeah, she told me that there were people that knew that we were being abused up there. That's um, so heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she said that um, people knew, but they didn't know, um, I guess, what to do. Um, mm -hmm. So they just left us up there. And they said they, the scary part is they said just, it looked like one day that me and my sister just disappeared. Um, and they're like, yeah, that's the scary part because my stepdad would tell us, he's like, we could, you know, we could chop your heads off and bury you under the tree. Nobody would know, would know. And, and it's true. Nobody would have, if me and my sister would have been killed, nobody would have ever, ever looked for us. Not ever. In, I mean, it's not, like we were, it's not like we were kidnap victims where you have somebody searching for you mm -hmm. over the years. Nobody was searching for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that was a scary part. And when I was there, that's, we knew that. I mean, yeah. we knew that. And that's what really scared us. We knew if something happened to us, nobody would ever look for us. So that was, I mean, that was I don't know. That's something we always thought about. Yeah. And did did yeah. your stepdad and mom ever, I'm surprised they didn't try to have kids together because they like wanted to kind of, you know, have all this power over you and your sister. Was that something you were worried about is them having more, them having more kids? I know they were going to try to foster kids down the line, but um, was that something you and your sister ever thought about? Um, well, it wasn't possible because my stepdad, um, with his last wife, his third wife, um, mm -hmm. and he had six other children okay. that he never saw, but he had a vasectomy, so it oh, wasn't possible for them good. to have. That's yeah. good. Cause I was thinking they'd probably want to have all these kids and then, you know, get torture them and, you know, I don't know. I was, oh, I they was, did. they did want more kids. Um, he ended up getting a reversal when I was like 15 or 16 somewhere around there, okay. um, but it never worked. So, oh. yeah, and, that's why they wanted to adopt. And then so when was the uh, transition made or when was the decision made to get you uh, to move in with the full Amish community? 
When was when well, did they that actually happen? wanted to? I think Misty did. Yeah. Uh, so when I was um, eighteen and a half, um, my stepdad. Um, I, I knew that once I turned eighteen, that they were no longer legally allowed to hold me to beat me. You know, I knew that eighteen was an adult, so. Um, I knew that I was allowed to leave, but one of the problems was I was so brainwashed that I had to be Amish. Mm -hmm. That sort of kept me there. Um, Me and my sister would talk about running away or, uh, you know, leaving, but our first concern always was we have to take a lot of clothes with us because we can't wear worldly clothes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds crazy, but we were so brainwashed into believing that we had to dress Amish that... That sort of kept me there for another six months because I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I couldn't just run into town, even if I made it into town. I couldn't run into town and ask the police to help me and, you know, maybe be helped by them because I had to be Amish. I mean, that was one the religious brainwashing was one of the things that um, really hindered us. Mm-hmm. So finally, when I was 18 and a half, it was springtime and... Um, my stepdad was going to beat me for something really minor, for not putting a hammer away. I mean, it was ridiculous. So yeah. finally, I realized, you know, if I don't stand up to him, I'm never getting out of here. Um, so he told me to, like, bend over and touch my toes. That's how they always, you know, like this thing. I mean, it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But um, so I told him, no, I wouldn't do it. And um, then he grabbed me by the neck. He tried to break my neck. My sister, like, jumped on his back. I and mean, it was a whole thing. And I ended up running out of the house, and I tried to run down off the mountain. But, I mean, it was taking forever mm-hmm. because I couldn't take the road. I had to run through the sagebrush. You know, I don't know if I ever tried to run through the sagebrush, but it's, yeah. like, impossible. I yeah. mean, it's so close, grown together. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes you, like, 10 minutes to get 50 feet. So I was trying to run through the sagebrush, and they got in the truck. You know, they came in after me, um, you know, they, I ended up going back to the ranch with them because, I mean, there was I knew there was no way for me to get into town. So I went back with them hoping that, you know, I was really scared. I didn't know what they were going to do. And to my surprise, they sat me and my sister down, and they said, okay, we know of this Amish community. Um, we're going to take the girls there. And my, my sister and I were just, like, looking at each other like, what? I mean, that's not what we expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were expecting but a beating. <laughs> Or worse. I mean, I was very, I didn't know what to expect. I was sort of in a trance. You know, I I didn't know Mm -hmm. really what to expect. Um, But I think that they, I think that they had actually been waiting for me to do something like that. Because, I mean, I think they realized they weren't going to be able to hold us forever. I mean, eventually we were going to become adults and we were not going to stay Mm -hmm. there. I mean, they told us, they said, we're going to be beating you when you're 50. You belong to us. That's what they told us that our whole life. Um, but you know yeah telling us that and actually it becoming a reality you know that mm-hmm. once you start becoming an adult you know you it's, it's harder to hold you than when you're a kid you know yep. when you're a child yep. so um i think they've been planning on eventually taking us to this community if we rebelled if and when we rebelled and um it was to prevent us from eventually maybe making it into town because I mean as much as they scared us, they couldn't really watch us twenty four seven. So, you know, one time in the middle of the night I might make it into town. I think that was their fear. So that's why they took us to the Amish Green. They like, you know, we'll we'll take them there, they'll keep them quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll become Amish and our hands will be free of them. 
mm-hmm. pretty much. That's that's what they thought, I think. So then they started taking us to this Amish community. Um, my stepdad drove us over there, and um, we visited, like, a few times over the summer. Um, you know, it was far away, so we couldn't go very often. Like, I think we went maybe four or five times. Um, he talked to the ministers there, and they agreed to take one at a time, which, so they took me first. He said we'd give her a trial period. She could live with one of our um, families. You know, they'll sort of adopt her, be her Amish parents. Mm-hmm. And then if that works out, then we'll take in her sister a year later. That was the plan. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm so I'm so surprised that this community did that because that's kind of out of the ordinary for the Amish. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also true that, you know, the Amish are very um, related to each other. So they do have um, history throughout the communities of picking in teenagers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, I, since I left, I found that there was a lot more teenagers taken into the Amish than I thought, originally thought. Um, and it's to kind of, you know, um, enter new blood into the community. Sort yeah. Of. So, yeah, so they took us in. Um, I, I lived with this family that, that only had four children, so um, they sort of adopted me. And um, I started learning, you know, German, uh, Pennsylvania Dutch. I learned the language. But then, like, nine months, I was sort of fluent in the language. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah. The, the little children, they helped me a lot. So, um, and then a year later, less than a year later, my sister came to the community. So, I mean, at first, it was like, you know, it was amazing, you know, to be rid of, mm-hmm. you know, my mom and stepdad. Um you know, for a while, there was that fear that I might get sent back, you know, if I didn't make it. I mean, that's one reason I learned Pennsylvania Dutch so fast. I mean, yeah. it was kind of do or die. Yeah, survival um, situation. mode. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that I was, like, brilliant. I was just fantastic learning this language. You know, I had to learn this language. I had to fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I start fitting in, you know, I realized, you know, they weren't going to send me back. Um, so my sister came to the community, and I told I ended up telling the people, you know, the community, um, what what my mom and stepdad were. You know, my mom and stepdad are like, okay, now we're rid of them. But I ended up going back, back home, um, and telling the police what they did. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, but they were never arrested or anything. But I, over the years, I managed to stop them from getting foster children. So, yeah, which I mean, is really, fun. that's really, really good. And you had to stay super persistent with that for that to even happen. How many times would you say that you've gone, you went to the police, like three or four times? At least, yeah. yeah. And I called them on the phone, I don't know how many times. I mean, their plan was to get rid of us and to get foster kids. And that's what they thought they were doing. Mm-hmm. Before, over the summer, when we were going to the back and forth of this Amish community, mm-hmm. they had me and my sister, you know, like sort of, you know, staining the floor, getting the house looking mm-hmm. good to get foster kids. So they thought, okay, now we're going to go get, you know, five, six foster kids. That was their idea. And we'll just start all over again. While, um, they, you know, were, that's what they, thought. while they were abusing your grandma and also your yes. mom's um, mentally ill uh, stepsister Franny, that was something else. You uh-huh. had a burden on yourself because you wanted to rescue them and you tried to go to the police several times to help them as well and they never found anything wrong, correct? They didn't try. I mean, it was the religion. They didn't try. The police didn't try to find anything. Um, so I, 
When so, my sister came to the Amish community, I, I went back to the police. I sent the police up there, and the police came back, like, a couple hours later, and, um, like, well, we didn't see any, anything out of place. Your mom right. invited us in. We had coffee. I was like, did you pick up, you know, the, the hem of my aunt's dress? I mean, mm-hmm. she has bruises from head to foot, mm-hmm. but she was also clothed from head to foot. Mm-hmm. And the police said, no, we can't do that because that would be against their religion. That's and I was so like, well, can you send a woman up there? I was like, they're being so badly abused. You have mm-hmm. no idea. I mean, they're being tortured every single day, like literally beaten mm-hmm. with slice waters, you know, just horribly abused. And Franny and, only uh, had, she was on, it said like the mental capacity, or what's the word for that, Vic? Like when you, of a four-year-old. So how would you say yeah, that? Yeah, of, of so, a three-year-old. Of a three-year-old. So that's so devastating. She and wouldn't she even under- schizophrenic. understand the concept of what's happening to her. Yeah. Uh-uh. That's sad. Oh, it breaks my heart. I, I asked the police to send a woman up there. I was like, can you at least send a woman up there? You mm-hmm. know, some kind of woman that has the authority to do this. And they're like, the, the closest woman, they said EMT, we could get it was 40 miles away. You know, we lived in northern Washington, in the middle of nowhere. Um, I was like, okay, can you call her? That, that's what I, I, yeah. I was like, can you send her up there? Um, they're like, no, we don't want to do that. Um, I mean, going to the police was like pulling teeth. I mean, it was, they would not. They would not. And I, I told them, I said, if you pick up her dress, if you roll up the sleeve of her dress, or lift up her dress, you will see mm-hmm. so many bruises. And they wouldn't do it. And, and then, you know, that, that's another reason why I wrote the book, because, I mean, mm-hmm. the police need to know when, you know, people come out of strict religion, you know, mm-hmm. they're risking a lot to go to the police. And, yeah. you know, the police need to take this seriously. Um, right, yeah. They wouldn't. They wouldn't do it. Yeah, because for you being Amish bad. at the time, going to the police, that was something that was very, like... like taboo. Yeah, so they should mm-hmm. have realized if she's coming here, she's not just rebelling, like what they were saying, you're just rebelling on them. No, mm-hmm. you're trying to, you know... Save somebody. Save, yeah, save someone's life. Yeah, I mean, but they would... I, I think the, the police didn't want to get involved in some... They looked at it like some religious dispute. They did. They just didn't want to get involved they kept saying you know we have to respect their freedom of religion mm-hmm. uh, you know sometimes freedom can can uh, trap people i mean it's not freedom freedom from somebody can trap another person mm-hmm. they, you know there's a delicate balance there of freedom of religion and that religion's um freedom to abuse people um and i i tried to explain that to the police but they just didn't yeah they, i mean they literally brushed me off they said well fill out this report and send it back to us mm-hmm. and yeah and that was well it, i'm just much. really happy you got them to not get foster foster children yeah, you saved some kids you lives saved some lives sure. and so then you um eventually you have enough w- at the amish right you realize this is not something that i want to stay in well, I was in, so I was in the Amish community for three and a half years, mm-hmm. and then um, the the family that I was assigned to. So my sister, she was assigned to a family. She ended up moving away to another state, mm-hmm. to another um, community. She started dating and everything. Um, but the family that I lived with, um, there was a lot of um, domestic problems. I mean, the the husband was very mean to his wife, mm-hmm. um, um, emotionally. Um, mm-hmm. He always berated her, you know, got on to her for not working enough. 
I mean, Amish women are really, really overworked. Um, so there was just a lot of problems. So the wife, um, you know, she was abused. So she took it out on me yeah. um, because, you know, I was this 19, 20 year old girl in their house mm-hmm. and her husband liked to talk to me. I mean, there was nothing physical going on, but mm-hmm. um, she didn't like that he gave me so much attention. You know, which I didn't ask for, you know. But yeah. He, you At know, times you it. tried to ignore him because you didn't want to cause yeah, that rift I, between you and the wife. You wanted to be friends I, to I, make your life easier. Yeah. I, I think he did it as another form of trying to hurt his wife. Yeah. I, I think that's why he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually I couldn't take it anymore. I mean, I just could not take her. I mean, she ridiculed me for everything all the time. Um, so the bishop... The bishop's family lived a little ways away, just like a three-minute walk away, um, their farm, their farmhouse. And um, the bishop's wife was my friend. She had seizures, um, so I was over there helping her mm-hmm. a lot. And eventually they invited me to come stay with them to get out of that, you know, that situation I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're like, just come stay with us, be our maid. Um, you know, they had seven children. Um, so, I mean, the family that I was living with, they didn't really like the idea. Um, but you know, I, I just like picked up my stuff. I didn't have very much stuff and I just took it, mm-hmm. you know, the children helped me take it over to the bishop's house. Um, so I moved in with them. Um, but right when I was, you know, I remember I was coming out of my bedroom that I shared with the, the girls and I had my arms full of my dresses and, um, the Amish family that I was living with, the Amish man that was now my Amish dad, um, he stopped me at the doorway and he's like, you just have to know that the Amish is a very bad, the, the bishop is a very bad man. I was like, what? Um, that's what he, t- he told me that. And I remember just like sort of freezing for a minute because I knew that um, there was whispers that the bishop was um, mm-hmm. um, took advantage of the girls. Yeah. Of, like, maids, and um, he acted, you know, inappropriately. Um, but, you know, I was desperate to get out of this situation that I was in, so... You didn't want to believe I it. Knew, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I knew in my gut, I knew. I knew I shouldn't have moved in there. I knew there was something wrong, and um, but I, I was just desperate to get out of this situation, and the bishop took advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew that. So he, he's, I think he was sort of waiting for his moment... And he found it, and that's when he invited me into their their house. Because I I found out later that at the beginning, he was the one. He wanted me to move in with him. That's Mm -hmm. why they agreed to take me in. I was going to move into their house. That was was the original plan. Um, But, yeah, I found out later. The original plan when we were going over there for the summer was the bishop was going to have me move into his house and be the maid, take care of the children, help his wife. Um. That was the original plan, but the church voted against it because he had already been shunned for molesting his oldest daughter at that time. Jeez. And you know, I was I was eighteen years old when I moved there, but I looked twelve. Yeah. I mean, I think people uh, were afraid of an outsider moving into his house and maybe getting molested and maybe saying something. I, I think that was yeah. the the reason they voted against it. But that was. You know, I said it was very unusual for them to take in, you know, teenagers, you know, outside people. Mm-hmm. But I think that was why. That was the bishop's plan. Yeah. So three and a half years later, I think he saw his window moment of to, opportunity. Yep. 
Yeah, his window of opportunity, and that's when, um, you know, I moved into their house. You know, in my subconscious, I knew I knew it was a bad idea. I, I could just feel something was very off with it. And when my Amish dad stopped me at the door, and he's like, he's a very bad man, you know, Amish rules prevented him from telling me that the bishop, Amish bishop was a child molester, because he wasn't allowed to talk about that. Um, after somebody's forgiven, you're not allowed to talk about it. So mm-hmm. I think in his own way, he was trying to warn me, but he wasn't allowed to say anything um, mm-hmm. specific. So all he told me was he's a very bad man. And, um, uh, but, you know, I didn't listen because, you know, I thought, oh, he just wants to keep me here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I ended up moving in with Amish Bishop. And I think the next day he started molesting me. Like, yeah, but, you know. It started out really slow. Um, you know, I tried to ignore it, you know, just like, you know, him filling me up and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. you know, at first he pretended it was an accident, you know. He, like, came up behind me and, you know, stumbled and, you know, started filling me up and stuff. So that's sort of how it started. And then, you know, I lived there for six months. It started progressing worse and worse and worse. And, uh, but, you know, now I was trapped again, you know, um, I was the unmarried girl. I knew that if I went and told anybody that, you know, they were going to say I caused this problem, you know, mm-hmm. it was my fault because over the years since I had lived there, you know, I've been accused of, you know, maybe pinning my dress too tight, not wearing my head covering far enough forward, you know, those things, um, that sort of, it wasn't true. These were lies right. started by the right. the lady that, you know, the family that I lived with, the lady was jealous of me. So mm-hmm. she would tell you know, the deacon this, the minister this, and then these rumors start flying. And in a community like that, once rumors start flying, I mean, your reputation, once your reputation is ruined in a community like that, you, you kind of never get it back. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, and some of these rumors are actually started by the bishop himself. When we started um, coming to the community, he actually started some of these rumors that me and my sister were staring at the boys, but we were just after boys. He started them. He, like, planted the seeds. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was just, like, all sort of planned out. And um, so I was trapped. I, I I couldn't say anything because I knew that if I said something, if I asked for help, um, they would turn it around and it would be my fault. So yeah. I was just quiet for six months. And then um, eventually I started getting suspicious that he was molesting his children. I I wasn't a church member when he was shunned, so there was no way for me to know that he, he was a child molester. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're, you're Amish, after you've been shunned and taken back into the church, it's usually for six weeks, the, the church members are not allowed to talk of your sin mm-hmm. ever again. So, um, or that means they have not forgiven you. Um, so... There was no way for me to know that he had already been found out by the entire church as a child molester. So, but I started picking up on things. You know, the the oldest daughter, she was 12 years old, and she just did some things that I recognized um, a molested child would do. Like, she was very fascinated with, um, uh, you know, animals mating and stuff like that. And that's a big red flag for, Mm. um, you know, molested children. And mm-hmm. I, I knew that. I'd actually read it somewhere in a paper or something. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember. But that was, like, one of the first clues that I picked up on. I was, like, looking at her. Um, and her mom was, like, scolding her for pointing out to the other children. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, I wonder. And then I started, you know, like picking up on other things. And then um, eventually after six months, um, the bishop like came into my room and, you know, attacked me. Um, I have like a lot of blackouts in there because, I mean, it was a pretty brutal attack. Mm-hmm. Um, but after I got away from him and um, I, re- I ran to uh, a lady that lived on our property, she, she mm-hmm. ran a horse rescue. Um, she was sort of living the plain lifestyle a little bit, um, but I ran to her for help and she sort of convinced me to go to the police. And the reason, the real reason I went to the police was because I was afraid he was molesting his children. I was yeah. like, I, I had been that child and nobody had helped me. And I was like, now I'm in that position, you know, and I cannot be that person that doesn't help the children. So yeah. that, that's the real thing that motivated me to go to the police. Mm-hmm. Um, so this lady ended up driving me to the police station and you know once again I'm sitting here with the police and they do not want to do anything and it's just like all over again this nightmare of trying to convince the police that I need help that these mm-hmm. children are in danger um and they're like so he's Amish um it's like it's your word against his um I was like you know question the children I was like I'm very afraid that he's molesting his children and, you know, you could just see this resistance. They, they did not want to listen to me. They did not want, they did not want to have to do anything about it. Um, because he was Amish. I mean, that, that's, that's the scary part. Yeah. Um, you know, like we've never heard of this kind of thing with the Amish before. Um, you know, but, you know, I stayed in the, the police station for, I think it was there for a couple hours. And, um, they're like, okay, we'll send a car out. So the, the lady drives me back to, you know, I went back to the property with her because I had nowhere else to go. And um, right after we come back to the, the property, I stayed in the shed where she was living with her. Um, and I didn't go back to the main house. Yeah. Um, but the police car came out and um, I was like, okay, good. You know, they're going to at least go in there. They're going to talk to the children. Mm-hmm. You know, something's going to come out. And um, they went in there. The bishop like, came out of the house. He shook their hand. It was very nice and invited them in. Um, they stayed in there for like 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And when they came out of the farmhouse, they were waving at the bishop. They were waving at the bishop, at the children. Oh and they were waving gosh. goodbye. Like, like they had had this very friendly, happy time in there. And, um, yeah, I was I was standing outside of the shed. Um, this lady had like three wolves. I was just like petting the wolves. I couldn't believe it. I was like, okay. I mean, it happened again. I mean, they're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I stayed on the property, the bishop's property, for another month, um, but with this lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had plans that I was going to go to Seattle to live with my stepdad's sister. She agreed to take me in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually I went to Seattle. Um, and I called a detective from Seattle. I started, you know, getting into, you know, a new life. And I started studying for my GD. Um, I left the Amish. I completely left the Amish at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I called the detective. I kept calling the detective on this case because I was like, I cannot be the person that leaves children with a, you know, a sexual predator. Right? Yeah. I cannot be that person. So I kept bugging this detective. And um, I think it was like a week after maybe two weeks after I got to Seattle, somewhere, some time frame after I got to Seattle, 
I called, and he's like, we went out to the property. The bishop's gone. The whole family's gone. And um, they found out that the, the bishop had rented a van. Um, he had taken the money from the church uh, purse, you know, the, the money they collect for the, you know, yeah. in case somebody's uh, barn brings down or something. He had taken that money, and he'd rented a van. He had put his whole family in there, and he hired this van driver to drive them into Canada. So... Um, he's pretty much it. The detective told me, he's like, we were, we started thinking back, you know, about the time one of the officers started thinking back from the time they were, um, at the, at the farmhouse. And, you know, he started thinking about it and he noticed that the wife looked a little bit off. Mm -hmm. He was like, maybe there's more to the story than we thought. Some strange reason the bishop realized that they were going to come out and, arrest him yeah and i have a strange feeling i i really think that somebody took it off somehow yeah because they were getting ready to go out and finally arrest him and mm -hmm. they just appeared into canada which is strange right that is strange and you thought that he was maybe poisoning his wife as well right or is, yes yeah yes like having I, giving her something so she would have her seizures more frequently yeah, she had a lot of seizures, but when I moved in with them, the the seizures increased. Like, it was like two, three times a week, and mm -hmm. they were, you know, they made her really tired. And um, one time I was sitting at the breakfast right before I called the police. I was sitting at the breakfast table with him and the children, and he made this really creepy comment. He said that, you know, if mom dies, you know, Misty will make a, a, a nice mother for you. He told he was telling this to the children. Right, and their mom and was very much still alive and could be she fine. She was alive. Yeah. She, was in the, she was in the bedroom. She just had a seizure. And then he said this to the children, like he was trying to plant this seed that mom's going to die and this is your new mom. Mm -hmm. That's what it, I mean, I can still feel that feeling. I don't know how to explain it. I can still feel the feeling that I felt when he said that. And it was just like this. Yeah. piece of lead dropping to the bottom of my stomach. I mean, it was so, I said, like, oh, my gosh. And then um, I pushed the door open. Like, he would always supposed to give her her medicine yeah. and stuff, you know. And I just I just had this very off feeling. I pushed the door open, and he was giving her um, water. Um, and it was, like, very suspicious looking. But, you know. Mm -hmm. Some people can say, oh, he's just giving her medicine mixed in water. But when I pushed the door open and he saw me, I mean, the look on his face was so guilty. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just knew. There was, I believe he was giving her something. And I got back in contact with his children a oh, couple good. years ago, and I asked the daughter, the oldest daughter, about that. I was like, do you think that your dad was giving your mom something? She's like, I don't know. I just know that mom was having so many seizures at that time. Um but she's. But she, I think after maybe maybe after they went to Canada, I think maybe he might have stopped because he needed he needed her at that time. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I really, I really think at that time he was giving her something that would cause those seizures, um, and perhaps kill her. Otherwise, why would he make that? Comment? Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And why would she not be having as many seizures now? And so when you got in contact with the kids. Their family is still like together, and are they still Amish? And no, so I got um, so I went to Seattle, and I I obviously became you know in the modern world, um, and then 
seven years after it left the Amish, I started writing my memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a couple years, and I, I published and everything. And then um, I was in nursing school. So, like, maybe a year and a half, two years after I wrote my memoir, I got this message on Goodreads, and um, it was like, we know the bishop's children. We just want to let you know that they're safe. Mm-hmm. I thought it was some sort of joke. You know, I was scared at first. I was mm-hmm. like, maybe it's a joke. Maybe it is the bishop himself. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to respond. Right. But then I was curious. So I ended up, so I do have an email we can um, give to the oldest daughter so she can email you. And I've been giving them my email. And she did. Um, the oldest daughter emailed me. And um, at that point, they were... Um, they were prosecuting their dad for child molestation. They were oh. in the process. So she told me that, um, you know, they ran to Canada. Um, but a year and a half after they got to Canada, um, their dad tried to get them all full Canadian citizenship. Mm-hmm. He did not want to come back to the United States. He wanted them all, everybody, to have full Canadian citizenship. And um, the Canadian um, authorities or whoever that is that you talk to about citizenship, mm-hmm. They realized that they were in the country illegally, so they said, uh, we'll give you the option to leave Canada or we will deport you. That's what they told them. So mm. they were only in Canada for a year and a half, and then they came back to the United States. But, you know, we had no way of knowing that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, that they were back in the United States. Um, I thought they were in Canada, and they were just gone forever. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's very suspicious. Why would he want to get everybody Canadian citizenship, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the detective actually told me, he's like, I think there's something far worse in this guy's past, but because he's Amish, we'll never know what it is. Yeah. And I think so, too. So, um, mm-hmm. so they came back to the United States, and then they were living, like, on the outskirts of different Amish communities and stuff. And then, um, finally, the three oldest daughters, they asked, they did sort of, like, the same thing I did. They asked a neighbor lady for help. The neighbor lady called in Child Protective Services, and um, Child Protective Services called in the police. And there was a detective called in at the time, and she was actually reading my book, which Mm. is very ironic. (laughs) Yeah, he was reading my book. He he told the social worker, he's like, this sounds very much like the story that I'm reading. He's like, these people ran to Canada, and he was like, I was... um, uh, interviewing one of the, the girls, and she's like, oh, we lived in Canada for a year and a half. And so we ended up um, giving the book to the social worker, and the social worker gave the book to the girls. And, like, you know, of course, they recognize the story. They're like, oh, yes, you know, that's Emma, you know, mm-hmm. the, my Amish name. Um, yeah. They recognized me right away, so that's how they got in contact with me, um, through Goodreads. You know, they didn't know how to mm-hmm. contact me. So mm-hmm. they got in t- contact with me through Goodreads, and... Um, yeah, she, uh, the oldest daughter told me that um, the three oldest girls, they asked this lady for help um, because their stepdad had, or sorry, the bishop had been molesting them their whole lives pretty much. It started with the oldest daughter when she was four and then just sort of progressed down the line of children, boys and girls. Um, she said that he was molesting them, you know, when I was in the house, oh. um, when I lived with them. Wow. Yeah, she said that... Um, Pretty much the things that he was doing to me, he was doing to them. Um, it was just, I mean, it seemed like he would have been busy his whole time just going around molesting everybody. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, there was so, yeah. So, you know, I was right about it. And mm-hmm. 
So at that time, they, they had a, a brand new um, baby sister. She was one years old. And, was, and they decided to go and ask for help because they wanted to save this, you know, little baby sister from what they had been through. Mm. Um, so that's what motivated them to right. go for help. Um, so the bishop was arrested. And um, actually, at the time when the social worker showed them my book, um, my book actually helped put him in prison because at that time, the, the oldest daughter, um, she was getting a lot of mail from um, from Amish relatives telling her, you know, she was a bad girl. You know, she should go back to her parents and be a good daughter. Mm-hmm. And she was sort of deciding to not press charges. She's like, I can't do this. And then when she got my book and she saw um, what had happened to me, mm-hmm. she realized, you know, her dad was this really bad guy. And mm-hmm. that's, that gave her the fortitude. She went to court. She pressed charges. And... Um, yeah, her dad was sentenced to uh, 10 years in prison for child molestation. Wow. Um, that, that is... And the mother, lost, the mother lost all of her parental rights because this whole time, you she... know, she knew. Oh, she did know. Yeah, no, she knew oh. from... She's the one, the mother is the one that reported um, the, her, the bishop to the ministers oh, when the daughter okay. was four years old. Oh. That's when he was shunned. Yeah. It was three years before I came to the community. She went to the ministers and told them that um, that her husband was molesting their oldest daughter, oh, um, my who was gosh. four years old. So they they shunned the bishop for six weeks as the the average. I mean, that's just insane. Wow. Um, he got shunned for uh, yeah for six weeks. You know, the children were out taken out of the home. You know, he was just shunned when. In the Amish, when you get shunned for like child molestation, nobody comes in and and asks the child, "Are you okay? Do you feel safe?" I mean, nobody is concerned with the child. Basically, they the just only... get like a little break, and then they go right back to their bad habits. Yeah, the only thing that happens is you are shunned by the church. So that means after church, you know, you can't sit and eat with the other members. You have mm-hmm. to sit off to the side during church. You can't go to social events. But you live in your same house. Mm-hmm. Nobody takes your children away. I mean, you just continue your... Wow, yeah. You basically get a break from church and social events for six weeks, pretty much. Jeez, um, But nobody comes in and, you know, questions the child, are you hurt? Are you scared? Nobody is concerned with the victim. You know, if it's a child yeah. or a woman, the, the victim is not the concern. It's a small punishment for the sin, and then everybody goes back to normal life. So that's what happened with the bishop. She, uh, the bishop's wife, went to the ministers. Um, they shunned him for six weeks, and life just continued as normal. Um, but the the bishop's wife herself was um, child sexual abuse victim. She she and all of her sisters had been um, molested by her dad, who was a deacon in the church. Jeez. Um, her mother, her mother had reported their dad to the church five times, and then eventually stopped. Um, because it didn't, you know, do any good. So, I mean, there is, I mean, the the church is taught to report everything to the ministers. Mm -hmm. But the ministers, if that's going to be the case, the ministers need to be held responsible for reporting it to the police. And they can't just keep doing this cycle of what they're, you know, of what they're, they're doing, of just shunning people for six weeks. And in the last year, um, I 
come into contact with so many um, sexually abused survivors who have left the Amish and Mennonites who say that they were treated the same way. They were made to feel guilty for what happened to them. And their perpetrator, if he was punished at all, he was punished for a few weeks to shun. Yeah, there's so... I started a a closed Facebook group for us. There's so many of us. Yeah, that's that's crazy that you were able to get out and share your story. And now other people are getting out and sharing their story uh and making it a, a more safe environment for everybody that's doing that and not feeling that they're stuck in those situations forever, right? And... And so that's, you know, a great testament to what you're doing in, in that advocacy. Um, Re- uh, recently, I, I helped in a real live uh, case. Um, I guess somehow my name is circulating among the Amish, and I had this ex-Amish lady contact me. She just left. I'd known her for a little while. Um, she just left the Amish like six months before she contacted me um, to help in this case. Um, but she knew of this this Amish rapist, he was single, um, he was in his 50s, and she said um, that her community um, knew that he had, he had raped over 12 boys. Oh, wow. Um, and they, they kept sending him, um, she was more liberal Amish, so the liberal Amish, they will send rapists to, like, these Amish-run counseling centers, you know, for a few months to get rehabilitated. So they kept sending him to these um, Amish and Mennonite-run rehabilitation places to get cured, you know, mm-hmm. what they say. Um, and she said that she said that there was at least 12 known victims. He had just raped another boy. And um, they were sending him to this rehabilitation place again for, I don't know what, maybe the 10th time. And um, she's like, we need to do something. She's like, there's 12 known victims, and there's probably maybe three or four times that many. Mm. Um, so she, she told me, she's like, I've called the sheriff. I've called the police. I've called child protective service. Nobody will do anything. She's like, can you help me? And I was so, I was so mad. Mm-hmm. So I knew this reporter. I called this reporter. I was like, there's gotta be something we can do. What, what can we do to stop this guy? You know? So this reporter said, hold on. I might know somebody that can help you. They put me in, in contact with this ex-Mennonite lady who knew what he talked about that had worked on a, uh, a case in the Mennonites like this. So it was like this whole thing that took like a month of going back and forth of her helping me. And we were going back and forth to the sheriff. They're like, oh, no, it's not our county. It's that county. It's not our just, you know. They just were bouncing us around. But finally, um, child protective services were called out. Um, they called the police and he was arrested. That's so. amazing. That, that's that's yeah. really really amazing and, and and it's just like that cases like that that somebody may never have spoken out had you not spoken out and so that that's that's truly like i i really commend you for that and we also have questions here yeah, from our, so our listeners i told them about like a month and a half ago that we were going to have you on and to read your book and so they did and they came up with some questions um and if you can't answer okay. some of them just say you don't can't answer them um this was just some things they were curious about after reading um so this one's from amanda Let's see. Whatever happened to your hope chest and the things inside of it? Oh, the hope chest. Um, mm-hmm. I left it in Seattle. Did you? I took it with me to to Seattle, and um, it was put in my um, my, uh, my step aunt had a furniture store. Um, my mm-hmm. step aunt was a very amazing person. 
Um, but I ended up putting the hope chest, I mean, it was pretty big, in the basement of her furniture store, and I think it's still there. Okay. Or, I don't know. I, I didn't want my, I didn't want to take any of my Amish stuff. At yeah. that point, I didn't want anything to do with my Amish stuff, my Amish yeah. clothes. Now I wish I had it, but at that point, just mm-hmm. the sight of it made me want to throw up, so yeah. I just left it there. Um, and then Amber would like to know, do you talk to any of your family, or do you keep your distance? Um, I write to my sister maybe a couple times a year, mm-hmm. um, but that's the only person, except for my brother that I, um, that just found me. I mean, we text a lot. Um, but yeah, I hear from my sister uh, a couple times a year. Um, she has three children now. She's married. She's still Amish. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very general letters. I mean, the letters are very, nothing deep or anything like that. And then she, she's allowed to write you back? Yeah, she does write a few times a year, um, but... Okay. Just, she just um, has to be very surface level. She can't tell you any details of anything? No, it's just very general, mm-hmm. like a letter she would send to any other Amish okay. person, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Today I quilted, tomorrow I'm canning, that kind of letter. Okay. Um, okay, Megan said, you've already accomplished so much in your life so far. What are some of your future plans or goals? Well, you just finished nursing so, school, so I would say that's a good goal that you've accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> so right now I'm working on the, the TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just, like, in the funding stage, and then um, hoping, hopefully, we start production, like, the end of January, you know, between January and March. Um, so that's that's going to be a two-season series. And then um, I have somebody interested in making a, a documentary about me. Um, and then these people that, um, these other ex-Amish, ex-Mennonite sexual abuse victims, mm-hmm. um, I want to make a, a documentary with them at some point. And um, I would like to actually, you know, I'm a nurse now, but I would actually like to um, continue with, you know, some sort of... Um, TV channel, you know, doing documentaries and yeah. interviews with like, child abuse victims, domestic violence victims, mm-hmm. and just really raise a lot of awareness. Um, at the end of each episode of the TV series we're doing, um, I'm going to, like, come on the screen for, like, a minute, and I'm going to give out the child abuse hotline, sexual abuse hotline, domestic nice. violence hotline. Mm-hmm. So I really want to raise awareness and bring this out into you know, everyday talking points, because that's one reason child abuse, sexual abuse has been allowed to go rampant, because people don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And once you really start talking about it, mm-hmm. um, I think it'll it'll stamp it out a little bit, at least I hope. That's what, I mean, that's what I want to, yeah. I want to do. Oh, I want to focus sure. on. Great. And then the last question, which I think everybody has, is this is from Deborah. How are we as non-Amish able to reach out and help the abused Amish? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot. Uh, I get a lot of emails with people asking that question. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very, very hard question to answer because the Amish are so insular. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't listen to people from the outside. So the only advice I can give is that um, become friends with them. Mm-hmm. You know, when I ran to the lady that lived in the shop, Mm-hmm. On the property, I ran to her because she was my friend. She was an outsider, and I thought she could help me. Mm-hmm. And once you're ready for help, you're not going to go to somebody inside the church because you know they're not going to help you. Right. They're going to report you to the bishop, to the ministers. Um, so if if you make friends with them and they finally make that decision that they are ready for help, mm-hmm. because, I mean, you can't help them until they're ready for help. 
there's no way you can help them. They'll shut you out. Mm -hmm. So if you can become friends with the community, um, be known as a a helpful, nice person. Mm -hmm. If somebody in the community is ready for help, then they might show up on your doorstep. I mean, it's, that's right. usually what happens. Okay. That, that, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's how people get out of the Amish usually. Yeah. And my personal question, my last, the last question is, I felt like, so Simba was the, was he the, was he a dog or a wolf? He was uh, half St. Bernard, half wolf. Okay. I always thought, like wanted you to adopt him because he like loved you so much. Have you seen him at all since like leaving there? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I was not in the position to have a dog. It was like, yeah. you know, moving and everything. But yeah, Simba helped me get through a lot of hard times. I don't know. For some reason, he like adopted me. Yeah. Like he put his like print yeah, on was, you. He was huge. Like, like he <laughs> almost came up to my waist. Like so oh. gigantic. He was orange. He was flat. He was so sweet. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for some reason, um, the lady that, that owned him, it was a lady in the shop. She's like, I can't believe it. He's adopted you. Mm-hmm. She's like, if you had a house, I would give him to you because mm-hmm. he literally adopted you. But um, he helped me through a lot. Like, you know, I would hug him when I was sad. You know, mm-hmm. I was always going down there playing with him. Mm-hmm. And um, if the bishop, if I was down there with him and the bishop walked by, he would just go crazy. Yeah. Like, he wanted to rip out the bishop's jugular. Like, mm-hmm. he was very smart. Mm-hmm. You know, dogs know those things. So, yep. yeah. Yeah, yeah and he he kind of like doggy heaven now, but oh, is he? Yeah, I just loved yeah. how how he was so protective of you, and like he knew bad people when he saw them, and mm-hmm. how like when you stayed in like the trailer with him, you knew like yeah, it was hard for you to sleep, but at least you knew you had him. Kind of, he would pretty much get anybody that was going to try to hurt you. So that was a really mm-hmm. cool connection um, in the book too. Yeah, well, uh, I was sweet. Um, well, thank you so much, Misty. We really, really yeah. appreciate you uh, coming on our show and, and sharing your story with us. And for anybody that's listening and wants to read the book, it's Tears of the Silence uh, by Misty Griffin. You can get it on Amazon, mm-hmm. Audible, Barnes & Noble, any place that you you know, you know get your reading material from. Uh, it'll be available there. Um, and yeah, look, we look forward to... You know, we wish you the best of luck on the TV series and we look forward to watching it uh, mm-hmm. when it comes out. Um, and just again, thank you so, so much for opening up with us. Thank you for having me. Okay, and you have a great day. You too. Thank you so okay. much. Yep. Bye. <laughs> okay, bye. Well, thank you guys so, so much. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the conversation and, mm-hmm. and just keep... Uh, just keep that in your thoughts. If you see a sus- suspicious situation like that, or if somebody's reaching out to you uh, for help, or you see something that you feel like in your gut might not be right, yeah, maybe question it a little bit and mm-hmm. investigate some more and see if you can help that person. But you know, this is just one of the many, many stories out there of of people that have been abused, and mm-hmm. luckily she was able to get out. Um, but we hope you guys enjoyed the show. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. You can always listen at www.cococalientepodcast.com um, and follow us on Instagram at Coco Caliente Podcast and on Twitter at Coco Caliente Pod. Thank you. Thanks. Powerful is Cox Internet. 
powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.